if you, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them. If you have your phones, go ahead and swipe out of Facebook and Instagram and open up your Bible app. And we're going to look at Luke chapter 23 this morning. We are in our uh, sermon series, The Final Steps, which traces the life of Christ chronologically through his final days. Uh, after today... And after next Sunday, which is a special worship and prayer service we'll be having, we only have four more messages in this series. Um, and uh, we definitely have not covered every story, every conversation, every teaching, every miracle of Jesus. Um, we must remember also that what uh, John wrote at the end of his gospel when he said in John 21... He said, now there are also many things, many other things that Jesus did, and I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So we have not covered everything in this series, but we've tried to hit some of the major themes. And, and John was right. It is absolutely impossible to plumb the depths of God. You can research for the rest of your life just one aspect of God, and you still will not exhaust the depths of his character. So we look at Luke 23 for our text this morning. This is part 14 of our series, and this message is called When God is Silent. When God is Silent. Luke 23, and we're going to look at verses 46 through 56. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And after having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. It's a sign of grief. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. There was, now there was a man from, I'm sorry, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one ever had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him, with Jesus from Galilee, followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. What are the wonderful experiments that we have been able to uh, embark upon through this sermon series is to really try to put ourselves in these stories. To imagine ourselves as a disciple of Jesus Christ. What would it have been like to be one of his disciples? Hearing what Jesus said, trying to understand it in a way that they would have understood it, seeing Jesus work miracles, to, to stand outside of the tomb of Lazarus and not know what Jesus is about to do. Watching how he interacts with people, what he says and what he does. 
And despite Jesus' repeated warnings to the disciples of his impending suffering and his death, they entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday in this emotional high. Finally, word about Jesus had spread to uh, so much so that all these people had come out and were, uh, they were worshiping Jesus in the streets of Jerusalem as the Son of God. This had to just excite the disciples. Finally, Jesus was coming into his kingdom. Everything was changing for the better. The Messiah was about to take over. He was going to establish his kingdom, and they would all get to rule and reign with him. But as we've covered the events of Passion Week over the past messages, you know full well that it did not happen the way the disciples thought that it would. In front of their very eyes, Jesus was arrested. He was tried by an illegal court. He was handed over to the Romans. He was whipped, beaten, mocked, condemned to the most horrific manner of death known at the time. And then he died right in front of them. All their hopes, all their dreams, all their aspirations for the Messiah's kingdom were dashed to pieces. The hope of the world hung dead on a cross. The past three years were just a blur. They had to turn to themselves and ask, what just happened? What went wrong? How could this possibly be God's will? And yet it was. When a vineyard owner wants to make high quality wine, he has to go through a tremendous number of steps to get a wonderfully tasting finished product. Everything has to go right. He has to have quality water to begin with. He has to have a very well-formed vine in order for the branches and the clusters of grapes to grow so that they can bear the weight. He has to have the perfect balance of sugar, acid, and pH levels in the grapes at the time of harvest. And he's got to harvest it at the perfect time. But clusters of grapes that are even harvested at the perfect time don't magically become wine in a bottle. The only way for there to be wine is for grapes to be crushed. It reminds us of what Isaiah 53.10 says. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. When Christ was crushed by the Father, his blood was poured out to save all of humanity. It was the Father's will to crush him. And no one understood that but Jesus. Often, crucified criminals were left on the cross for days, weeks so that passers-by could see Rome's penalty for lawlessness. However, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate if he could bury Jesus' body. Imagine 
the consequence had that not happened. Jesus wouldn't have been buried. He would have been left on the cross, but he was buried. Now, this was a very unusual request uh, to grant for a condemned criminal. But Pilate condemned Jesus to death knowing that he was innocent. He said, surely this man is innocent. I find no fault in him. And he washed his hands of the death of Christ. So he knew Jesus was innocent. So Jesus' body, he gave permission for Jesus' body to be taken off the cross just before sundown on Friday to ensure they did not leave his body on the cross on Shabbat, on the Sabbath day. And it was also done so to ensure that Joseph and the others that were with him, uh, who, who helped him take Jesus off the cross, did not break the Sabbath by working after sundown. So they took his body down. They wrapped it in a linen shroud. They buried it in a tomb where no one had ever been buried before. Pilate gave the command to roll a stone in front of the tomb. And have it sealed with wax seals all around the tomb. So that there would be evidence if someone tampered with the tomb. Then they all went home. Think about that. They all went home and rested on the Sabbath. And this was a Sabbath unlike any other in all of human history. Because on this Sabbath, God was dead. Their Messiah, the Son of God, that they had pinned all their hopes and all their dreams on, lay lifeless in a tomb. The Sabbath is the day of rest commanded by God in the Old Testament. It goes from Friday at sundown to Saturday at sundown. 24 hours of nonstop rest and worship. It's commanded by God. And you might be thinking, I'm not Jewish. Can I partake in the Sabbath? Yes, you can. It's commanded by God as a perpetual uh, covenant and commandment. Resting on the Sabbath is a picture of the millennial rest that we will enjoy. And so, moms and dads, you get to rest for 24 hours. Friday at sundown to Saturday at sundown. No laundry. No dishes. No cutting the grass. All right? No work. It is at 24 hours set aside for rest and worship. Now, I have twin three-and-a-half-year-olds. It's a bit of a challenge, um, but we don't do all the manual labor, all the chores, whatever mess is made. I mean, unless it's a spill, um, but whatever, whatever mess the children make and they dump out of the toys, it stays that way for 24 hours. We rest for 24 hours and we worship. It is one full day where you go from a human doing to a human being. And you remember that. That God does not depend on you to accomplish his kingdom. He's done that. He gives you a day to stop and realize that all the things that are left undone will stay undone. For a day. So that you can rest. Now, keep in mind, this was revolutionary to the Jews coming out of Egypt. For 400 years, they got no day off. They worked. Every single 
day for 400 years. And they get to Sinai and God says, I command a day off. Wasn't there rejoicing in the camp? Aren't you excited when your boss says, you know what? Take tomorrow off. Don't work from home. Take tomorrow off. And you're like, I like this boss. This, this person knows what's up. This person wants me to be healthy in my mind and my body and knows I need to take a day off. And so this is 24 hours where you rest Whatever is undone at sundown on Friday stays undone until after sundown on Saturday. It is a wonderful day to be fully present with your family in rest and to be fully present in worship to God. But this Sabbath was a Sabbath unlike anything else. Scripture tells us that they went to their homes, all of them. And again, when we insert ourselves in the story, we, in, we insert our own emotions. What would we be feeling? What would we be thinking? We'd be thinking the absolute worst. The Messiah, the Son of God, the person we have walked with for three years, three and a half years, whatever, is dead. All the things that he said, all the promises are, he says, I, I, where I'm going, you can't come, but I will come again. And Jesus was the only one that could raise people from the dead. If Jesus is dead, who will raise him from the dead? This is what they had to be thinking. And this became a Sabbath of worry, of fear, of anxiety. His death was too real. The memory of it was too raw. And as was their custom, they shared a Sabbath meal together on Friday night. And it had to take on a whole new meaning. The woman of the house lit the Shabbat candles. And all of the disciples had to remember what Jesus said. He was the light of the world. The only illumination in the home was from the candles. Everything they did on Sabbath, they had to, it had to remind them of something that Jesus said or did. When they took the bread and they broke it, it reminded them of when Jesus said this is my body, which is broken for you, pierced and striped bread, broken. It had to take on a whole new meaning for them. When they lifted up the cup of wine and they prayed the prayer, they remembered what Jesus said on the Passover. This is my blood, which is poured out for you. When you do these things, remember me. And boy, did they ever. It was the most somber meal, probably eaten in tears, eaten with overwhelming grief. They probably asked questions similar to the ones that we would ask when we face uncertainty, when we face disappointing situations. God, how could you let this happen? What do we do now? And I would imagine there were no joyful uh, Sabbath celebrations in the homes of the disciples that night. There was just fear of the future, a fear of their arrest, a fear that they don't know what will happen when Sabbath is over. Will the Jewish leaders send soldiers to come and arrest them? Will they be the next ones crucified? 
How can you worship God when these kinds of fears invade your heart and your mind? How can you worship when every prayer you pray feels like it's just bouncing off of the heavens? How can you worship God on a Sabbath when God is silent? 24 hours alone with your thoughts of the worst case scenario. 24 hours filled with fear. 24 hours filled with overwhelming grief and never-ending tears. I, I hope I've painted a bleak enough picture for you by now. It sounds like a horrible thing. Nobody will come to church the day after a devastating event like that. Nobody will be able to lift their hands and worship. You wouldn't be able to pay attention to the Sabbath message. You wouldn't be able to rest in his presence because you would be bombarded by what you should do next. Think about that. A Sabbath where all you ever think about, the, the one day you aren't supposed to do anything, is the day you think about what you should do, what God wants you to do. And that's actually why it is so beautiful that Jesus died right before the Sabbath. This Sabbath in particular was a really a love letter to his disciples. Because Sabbath is the day that you don't have to do anything. In fact, you're not allowed to. Sabbath is a day where you rest in all that God has already done for you. It is a day where you just be in his presence. And you know deep in your heart and your mind. That everything that needs to be done has been or is being done by him. What better way to appreciate Christ's sacrificial death than having the opportunity to dwell on that death for 24 hours knowing there's nothing you need to do. He paid it all. It's a day to remind ourselves of three important truths. And if you have your bulletin insert, you can fill in some blanks. Three important truths that we remember from Psalm 46. Psalm 46 gives us a blueprint of what to do when God is silent. So let's read it together. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. That means think about it. Pause for a second. Here's a little instrumental break. You know, you got to give the guitarist a little solo time. Okay, here we go. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. 
the God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The first thing we have to remember from this Psalm 46 is remember the presence of God. Remember the presence of God. The psalmist begins the song with reminding its listeners, you know, if they sang it or the readers of those who of us who read it of God's place in the midst of difficulty. Who is God? He is our refuge and our shelter in time of storm. The psalmist was painting a picture with his words. Imagine a massive thunderstorm rolling up on you while you're in the middle of rural Oklahoma. Yeah, me too. A wall cloud is coming towards you and it's ugly and it's not good. And it's flat all around you. There's nothing to cause the storm to move away from you. It's coming towards you. The first thing you would do if you can, is to run to your storm shelter. Now, you can stand there and argue with the storm. You can shake your fist at it as the funnel cloud begins to form. You can even deny its existence. You can curl up in the fetal position and hope for the best, or you can get to your shelter. The psalmist reminds us that God is our shelter in times of storm. And he's not a feeble refuge. He is a strong refuge whose presence helps erase our fears. Even if the earth gives way, the writer is painting a horrific scene in this psalm. Earthquakes so strong that the ground opens up. Uh, a mountain sliding off into the ocean, tsunamis slamming against coastal cities and submerging the cities in the midst of a scene that would strike the most intense fear any rational human being could have. We are to remember God's presence with us in those moments. Remember the presence of God. Number two, remember the protection of God. Remember the protection of God. So after painting the most chaotic scene, I mean, you know, Jerry Bruckheimer doesn't have anything on Psalm 46. This is chaos. So after painting the most chaotic scene imaginable, the psalmist shifts the attention of the reader to the city of God. He described a river of joy that runs through the city. Instead of focusing on all the chaos around us, he wants us to focus 
On this peaceful scene instead, a river of joy that flows throughout God's dwelling place. Because of God's presence, she shall not be moved. When we are safe within God's presence, when we are in God's city, her, his city will not be moved. The earth can quake and shake and mountains can fall into the ocean and tsunamis can slam, but the city of God will not be moved. In verse 6, it says that the wicked nations rage against God's city. And we see that today. People are fighting against God's purposes and God's kingdom. People who would rather stay in their sinful state than recognize their desperate need for salvation and deliverance. These wicked nations totter or shake. They can't even be unified in their attack against God's holy city. So what happens? God utters his voice. The lagos of God, as we talked about uh, two weeks ago, the, or last week. Uh, the word of God from John chapter 1. When he speaks, the plans of the enemy come to nothing. Their schemes melt away like wax. Imagine building a house with bricks. And for mortar, instead of cement, you used wax. Now, if you live in Antarctica, that really wouldn't be a problem. But if you live in Texas, it absolutely would be a problem. Because in Texas, we've had heat waves so bad that they've melted street lamps. They have melted the, the, uh, the stuff on top of the asphalt for runways at airports. And so when he utters his voice, it doesn't matter what, what attack of the enemy, what scheme of the enemy, what, what weapon the enemy has, it melts like wax. And this is prophesied in Revelation 19, 15, that when Jesus opens his mouth, the words that he utters have the effect of a double-edged sword destroying the wicked nations who seek to destroy his kingdom of peace. We think about Christ's meekness and that he's the prince of peace. And sometimes we just forget that he will protect his people. He will protect his city. And he will establish and defend his kingdom of peace. And so the psalmist reminds us that God is with his people. When we face silence from God, we must remember that he is very present and protecting us against any scheme of the enemy. As long as God is with us and God is for us, we have no reason to be afraid. In fact, since God is with us and since God is for us, the scripture reminds us who then can be against us. He isn't silent. He isn't absent. He is working. We just can't see what he's doing. But it doesn't mean he isn't doing anything. 
we, I've shared the story, and I'll share it real quickly. We remember back in the book of Exodus, when Israel has come out of Egypt, and they're on the brink of the Red Sea, and they have nowhere to go. Pharaoh's army is behind them, the Red Sea's in front of them, and mountain ranges are on both sides. They're literally hemmed in. God has hemmed them in. He has trapped them because he has a plan. And that night they go to bed, hearing Pharaoh's army behind them, seeing the waves of the sea in front of them, and knowing they have nowhere to go. They are trapped. But all night the wind was blowing. All night. God was gathering the winds from the north, south, east, and west. So in the morning, when Moses, by faith, put his staff in the water out of obedience to what God had said, all of those winds gathered together in one place, slammed down so hard they parted the sea with such force that it dried the ground at the, at the bed of that lake so that they didn't even get a drop of mud on their sandals. And God held the water there so that they could cross. And then when they were across, God's presence moved from blocking Pharaoh's army. And Pharaoh's army rushed in after them. And as soon as the last Israelite was across, and Pharaoh's army was in the middle of the bed of the sea, the wind stopped. And the sea came back together and killed Pharaoh's army. God is never silent. He is never absent. Just because you don't see him doing something doesn't mean he's doing nothing. All night the wind was blowing. They enjoyed the breeze. They didn't know God was preparing it for a miracle that day. Number three, remember the promise of God. Remember the promise of God. I probably have heard thousands of sermons that my dad preached, uh, but my favorite ones by far were the ones where he shared stories of how God worked miracles in our family. I heard stories of healings, stories of miracles, stories of provision, stories of God's wisdom directing us down a path that he had prepared for us. He literally trapped us so he could do a miracle. And I love those messages because they reinforced that every promise from God will be fulfilled. If he said it, he will do it. The psalmist beckons us closer in verse 8. He says, behold, the works of the Lord. Look what the Lord has done. You remember that song? We used to sing that chorus from Karen Wheaton back in the, back in the 80s. Look what the Lord has done. He healed my body. He touched my mind. He saved me, and it was just in time. Do you all remember that song? I'm going to praise his name. His power is just the same. Do, 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 do. Come on and praise him. Look what the Lord has done. That, it was the walk down that every bass player loved. Do, 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 do. When we reflect on all that God has done for us, we can face fearful situations with faith. Let me say that again, just so you get it. When we reflect 
on all that God has done, all the times that God has been faithful, we can face fearful situations with faith. He has never failed us. And he has never failed anyone who has put their trust in him. Never, never, never. Not in 6,000 years of biblical history was one person who put their trust in him ashamed or failed by God. According to a researcher, there are over 8,810 8, promises in the Bible. 8,810 promises in the Bible. And not one of those promises has been or will go unfulfilled. How do I know that? Because he's proven himself faithful time and time and time again. In the midst of the psalmist's reflection on God's presence, his protection, and his promises, God speaks. In the midst of this psalm, God now speaks back. And as he often does, he doesn't say what we think he'll say. We think he'll say, I'm the conquering king. Grab your weapons. Let's go fight this battle together. But he doesn't say that. He tells us to do something, but it's not what we expect. He gives us our marching orders, but they aren't orders to march. There are eight beautiful words in English that tell us what our place is in the midst of chaos and uncertainty. You ready? Be still and know that I am God. That phrase, be still, is the Hebrew word rafa, and it means relax. Let it go. Loosen up. Or in my generation, chill out. I don't know what this generation would say. I've stopped keeping track. It's the idea you get when you're trying to calm a frightened child. You pick them up. You pull them close against your chest so that they can hear the steady rhythm of your heartbeat. And you comfort them with the words, it's okay. I'm right here. I will handle it. You don't have to worry about a thing. I know what you need. I've got everything under control. You can just rest. Relax. Be still. And slowly, you see your child's face go from worry to comfort and peace as they fall asleep in your arms. I love that the Hebrew word for be still is also the same root word as heal, Rafa. Rafa means healer in Hebrew. And so God is telling us, be healed of your worries. Be healed of your concerns. Be healed of your fears. And just know 
be fully aware that I am God. You know what, folks? Since he is God, then that reminds us we are not. We don't need to handle it. If it's something we can't handle it, then why do we keep trying to handle it? He's reminding us. He is God. He lacks nothing. He needs nothing. He doesn't need our help to handle this situation. We're told by God, be still and let my godness be revealed to you. When God is silent, he doesn't need our help. Jesus even reminded us in John 5, 17, that God took the first Sabbath off just to show us an example. But God hasn't taken a day off since. Wouldn't it be terrible if he did? What would happen if your car broke down Friday at 10 p.m.? It's his Sabbath. Friday to sundown to Saturday at sundown. And if your car breaks down on Friday night, God says, well, I would help you, but it's kind of my day off. Have you ever, has anybody ever asked you to help them move and it was your one day off all week? And you thought, oh, why am I friends with you? It's my one day off and I'm going to feel guilty if I don't help this person. But I really don't want to spend it picking up their sofa and their refrigerator and their washer. What would happen if, if our kid got sick and we prayed and said, God, I need you to heal my kid. This is an emergency situation. And God says, I'm sorry, God's not in right now. But if you'd like to leave your name and number after the sound of the tone, someone will get back to you when it's not the Sabbath. Sorry you got food poisoning, but I'm a little busy resting, enjoying my day off. I'll handle your emergency later. Just puke. And I'll deal with you tomorrow. Sorry, that was maybe a bad example. Could you imagine serving God like that? That every Sabbath he took the day off. But Jesus reminds us in John 5, 17, he took the first Sabbath off as a picture, as an example to us. And he's never taken a Sabbath off since. He's never taken a day off since. And though the disciples rested and did no work on that fearful Sabbath, God was working. He was manifesting his presence to his people. He was protecting them from their worst case scenarios. And he was fulfilling his ultimate promise. The salvation of mankind. Worship team, come on up. Would you stand with me this morning? On that silent Sabbath, I hope the disciples were reminded of Psalm 46. I hope that somebody spoke up and recited these words to the group because I believe that it would have provided them comfort and peace when they were filled with worry and fear. We sometimes feel like they did. We, we feel like God might have forgotten about our emergency, about our unpaid bill, about our medical need. 
And in times of silence, in times where we don't see God's hand at work, we must remind ourselves of the promises in Psalm, uh, I'm sorry, promise from Isaiah 49, 15 through 16. Isaiah 49, 15 through 16, it says this, Can a woman forget her nursing child? Again, Isaiah is painting a word picture. Imagine a woman who's given birth and she's nursing her child. And God says, can a mother forget her nursing child? And that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even though they may forget, I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Now, God painted this wild scene here of the unlikely event that a mother could possibly forget about the child that she was nursing. All she has to do is look down and remember the child that she's holding. But even if it were possible for her to forget her child, God promised he would not forget his children. And then God said that he has engraved you on the palms of his hands. Now, I used to imagine, you know, when I would we, we read it literally and we interpret it literally as much as possible. I used to imagine that God have a knife and he carved my name into his hand. I'm like, he must have really big hands because there's a lot of people that love him and that serve him. And I used to kind of imagine it like you would carve your name into a tree. And he might do that, but the word engrave means to cut or pierce with stone or metal. And the palms of his hand actually refers to the whole hand. Halfway down from the arm, the wrist all the way to the tip of your fingers. And so no matter whether you believe that Jesus was pierced in the middle of his hand or in his wrist, the scripture in Isaiah prophesies to us that those nails which cut into the hands of Jesus had your name written all over them. All he has to do is look down and see the holes where those nails pierced his skin that were engraved with your name. And so when God promised your walls are continually before me, it's a reference back to Exodus. When God parted the Red Sea and he made a wall of water on their left and a wall of water on their right. The walls of God's provision protection and peace are always constantly continually before him in times of silence when fear just bursts forth in our minds we must meditate on the unwavering faithfulness of God and so our honest prayer can be God I I can't see your hand moving so let me hear your heart beating let me feel your presence. Let me remember your promises. Because great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. We're going to sing that this morning. So I want you to worship the Lord with us this morning as we sing. And just let this song fill your heart. Remind you of God's amazing grace and faithfulness.